Well, good to see you all tonight. And of course, we do know and are all being bombarded with stories about the coronavirus. And I thought today how typical Southern California or California as a whole, there's been one case of the coronavirus in Orange County. 50-year-old male who's already had it, recovered, and is doing great. So what did the administrators of Orange County do today? They declared a state of emergency. Now, obviously, this is a serious thing going on around the world, but uh, we need to remember that God is on the throne, amen? And that he is in complete control. And just a word uh, of encouragement regarding this Sunday. Uh, As you know, I'll be flying out to Miami on Friday morning, flying home Saturday night, so please be in prayer for the Awaiting His Return Conference in Miami all day Saturday. And then Sunday morning, we're going to look at one of the monuments of Scripture. Uh, Not only do people know these verses, many people know the address of these verses. And that puts them on a level uh, that is distinct among the things we know from Scripture. And part of our time together will be our PowerPoint verses this uh, coming month. And that is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with part of your heart. With what? All of your heart. We'll look at Proverbs 3, 1 to 10 Sunday morning if you'd like to read ahead. Now, are you ready tonight? Here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 10. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 10. We'll look at uh, the whole of the chapter, all 19 verses. Noting that in chapters 8 and 9, we found that they were about as different of chapters in content as two chapters in the same narrative could possibly be. Chapter 8 recorded seven different battles that David fought and the death of thousands and tens of thousands of Israel's enemies. And in chapter 9, we found the very opposite theme of that chapter, if you will, where David sought out opportunity to show kindness to anyone who was left of Saul's family for the sake of his beloved and now deceased friend, Jonathan. Now we made mention of 1 Samuel 20, 42, when Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now, this is important to note because David is now about halfway through his 40-year reign as king over Israel. Yet, now some 20 years into it, he still remembers the vow that he and Jonathan shared together. And he sought out an opportunity to show kindness to his family. Now, we titled our time last week, Unfailing Love. And we also established that unfailing love is our objective as followers of Christ And we made our case through three considerations. The first was our primary reputation should be one of love and kindness. That was true last week. It's true this week as well. Amen. Our primary reputation should be one of love and kindness. Now, David was known as a great king. He was known as a courageous warrior, valiant in battle. And the fact that Saul's servant, Ziba, completely trusted David and didn't ask him why he wanted to know about any descendants of Saul, but he not only told him of Mephibosheth, he also told him where he lived. And thus, David's reputation preceded him, so to speak, as a loving and caring man. 
Now, we also noted that unfailing love is expressed through more than just words. And unfailing love is a pursuit, not just a passion. And we'll talk more about that this evening. Now, David not only said he wanted to show kindness, he restored to Mephibosheth all the land that Saul's family had owned. And he assigned to Ziba and his 15 sons and 20 servants a task of working the land and giving the prophets or creating income, so to speak, for Mephibosheth's family. Now, this underscores our last point that David put forth effort and he pursued opportunity to bless the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. Now, we found last week that Mephibosheth was five years old when his father and his uncles and grandfather were killed. And verse 12 of chapter 9 tells us that he's now old enough to have a young son of his own. This again, validating or giving us a bit of a timestamp as to how far we are in to David's 40-year reign as king. Now, I am sure that on the back half of David's reign, or the second half, so to speak, that we'll enter into tonight, there were some wonderful times. However, there is a change that is quite clear, because in the future, things aren't going to be quite so pretty in our chapters and verses as we go. We're going to find that David commits adultery. David is complicit in murder. The child born from his adultery dies. One of his sons rapes his half-sister. Then her full brother kills him. And then David forgives him. And then the forgiven son turns on David and tries to overthrow him. When David is on the run from Absalom, he meets Ziba again. And Ziba tells David, hey, Mephibosheth, because you're on the lamb, told me that maybe now God is going to restore the kingdom to the house of his grandfather, Saul. And indeed, David just goes through bad experience after difficulty, after trouble. And the list goes on and on. But it all starts here. It all starts in our chapter tonight with one bad decision. And we need to note again that chapter and verse divisions are not part of the original text, though they they are helpful uh, for allowing us to make our way through Scripture and identify what what it is we're searching for. Sometimes they're a bit unfortunate. We'll encounter one of those things tonight. So we're going to reach forward one verse into chapter 11 that's going to tell us how David's reign went from being majestic and glorious to the soap opera that we just recorded. Now, in 2 Samuel 11, 1, we're told it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, or David stayed home. Now, it is possible that this bad decision, staying home when he should have been out on the battlefield, was preceded by another poor decision that indeed led to that one. And we'll find it, <coughs> excuse me, in our chapter tonight. But either way, there's a definite transition in Second Samuel and in the reign of David, as we could well describe through our title tonight, what we're going to observe in David's life is simply, and it's a title we all are familiar with, at least the adage. And our title is, One Thing Leads to... Another One thing leads to another is our title. Now, I toyed with the idea of as a man sows, so shall he reap. But the fact is there are actions that follow 
David's example, that those who committed them, even though they were similar to David's actions, they had to take full responsibility for their own actions, even though David's influence and poor decisions of his own certainly played a role. And we hear a lot today about the slippery slope, and David is going to get on it full speed ahead here tonight, as we'll see in, in our coming chapters. And one thing is going to lead to another, and our text is going to transition in Second Samuel from David's triumphs to David's troubles. And that's where we'll spend the balance of our time in Second Samuel. So would you stand and read with me, please, our opening verses for the night. Second Samuel chapter 10. We'll start with verses 1 through 5 and then find 1 through 5 leads to verse 6. Come on, one thing leads to another. Come on. Here we go. Verse 1. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, their Lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out and to overthrow it? Therefore, Hanan took David's servants shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. And when they told David, he sent to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. You may be seated. I don't know. I would have thought maybe David would have said, Wait at Jericho until you can get a new toga. And... uh but the beard will come into play tonight rather interestingly. Now, I mentioned it's possible that the poor decision of 11.1 was preceded by another, and this could be it, what we have in front of us in verses 1 through 5. Now, there is no record of Nahash's act of kindness that David was referring to in any of the records of the kings, including First and Second Samuel. But what we do know about the actions of Nahash is this, and we ran into it way back in 1 Samuel 11, 1 to 3. We're told Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off. For seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we'll come out to you. Well, that's some kind of agreement. Now, during that time, Saul rallied the nation together. And he did something interesting. He cut up an oxen and he sent it throughout all of the land with this message attached. 1 Samuel 11, the end of uh, chapter, verse 7 rather. Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle... So it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent, or in unity. Now, in 1 Samuel 11, 11, we're told, So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, uh, morning watch, and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Now, 
this may set the stage for our understanding of exactly what the kindness was or when the kindness was shown to David. It's possible that Nahash's kindness was actually ill-conceived in that he probably thought the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And his assumption would have been Saul is chasing David. David's on the run. David likely hates Saul. Therefore, David is my friend. I want to show him some kindness. Now, whether or not he should have actually done this, David sent his servants to pay their respects for the death of Nahash to his son Hanan. Now, the rulers of the Ammonites said to Hanan, David isn't honoring your father. David is spying out the land for an invasion. Now, you have to wonder if David's deception of Achish, the king of Gath, the capital city of the Philistines, when he led Achish to believe that David had actually defected to the Philistines, wasn't something that was widely known, including known by the rulers of Ammon. Now, we know that when the other Philistine lords saw David marching in the military parade in 1 Samuel 29 with the troops of Achish, they said, hey, that's David. He's the one who has killed and that they sing about killing tens of thousands. Get him out of here. Send him back home. And we know the story of what happened when he arrived back home and the loss of all that they had had because they had been raided by the Ammonites. Now, this is possible that this is what led to the act of kindness and also David's poor decision, potentially poor decision, because we do know one thing leads to another. Now we see here that the words of the princes led to action on their part, uh, the part of Hunan that is. He shaved off half of the ambassadors' beards and he cut their togas in half at the midpoint, leaving them naked up to their backside. Now, this was a severe act, and some say that in the culture of the day, this was actually a declaration of war. The value universally set upon the beard in that day by the Hebrews and other Middle Eastern nations was a man's greatest ornament. And cutting off a person's beard was an indignity indignity equal to being flogged or even being branded like a slave. There were many men in the day who would say, I would rather die than shave off my beard. There are men who would say that today as well. I remember for many, many years uh, when Terry and I were married, probably 15 years in, I had had some form of facial hair the whole time. And most of the time I had just a mustache and I would usually let it grow pretty large. And then all of a sudden one day, I don't know why, I just figured I'd shave the thing off. She had never seen me without a mustache. And for the next couple of weeks, she kept saying to me, what are you smirking at? I said, well, that smirk's been under there the whole time. You just couldn't see it. And I think there's a lot of guys today who look at their uh, beards as their greatest ornament. They're popular uh, again today. Now, sending the men back half naked only exacerbated their shame. It was insult upon injury. And David shows the magnitude of the indignity of these men who suffered by telling the men to stay in Jericho until their beards grew back. Now... I mentioned 1 Samuel 29 a moment ago, 
And one other thing we need to make mention, when David went to Gath, remember David said, all right, that's it. I got to get out of Israel. I'm going to Gath, the city of the Philistines, because Saul's going to eventually catch up. He was just tired of running. He said, Saul's going to eventually catch up. And someday he's actually going to kill me, even though God had been protecting him for many years. David just said, I've had it. I'm moving into Philistine territory. And we made the point in 1 Samuel 29 that there was no prayer before his actions. And that's the case here. There was no prayer before David sent this entourage of emissaries to pay their respects to the dead king, who was a long-term and ancient enemy of Israel. And one thing, David's prayerlessness led to another. So here's our first Observation from one through five. Listen, good intentions are not a replacement for seeking God's will. Good intentions are not a replacement for seeking God's will. There's a road that leads to somewhere that's paved with good intentions. Anybody know that adage? The road to where? H-E double hockey sticks is how we used to say it to the kids. But listen, God had been faithful to tell David when to go to battle. God had been faithful to tell David how to go to battle and when to avoid the battle. <clears throat> and the shame of the men and the battles that follow could have all been avoided had David sought the Lord. Should I go up? Should I send this entourage over to pay respects for Nahash for the kindness that he had showed me? But he didn't ask the Lord if it was something he should do because the Lord certainly could foresee the shameful response that his emissaries would have received. And therefore, one thing led to another. Now, in 2 Samuel 5.19, we're told that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. 2 Samuel 5.22-23. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. Now, here David just sends his servants and puts them in an at-risk situation. Now, his intentions were sincere. His intentions were good. But this was not the time to follow good intentions. <coughs> we also know from Judges 10, 9, that the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against who? Judah, also against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Listen, the Ammonites were a long-time adversary of Israel, just as the Philistines were, and the Egyptians as well. And David interacted with both of these two groups, the Philistines and the Ammonites, without prayer. And his intentions, (coughs) when fleeing to Gath, were good, saving his own life. His intentions here in comforting a son who'd lost his father, the king, were good. But in both situations, one thing led to another, and in neither situation was the outcome good. We don't act on our feelings and good intentions. We act on God's word and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, 6 through 12. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David... The people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers from the king of Micaiah, 1,000 men from Ishtab, 12, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. 
Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rahab, Ishtab, and Meachah were by themselves in the field. And when Joab saw that the battle line was against him and behind him, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do good, do what is good in his sight. Now, the Ammonites saw that they had been made repulsive to David by their act. Now, the word is interesting that's translated as repulsive. It means to smell bad or it means to stink. And David thought the Ammonites stunk for what they did to his men. And the fact of this humiliation was something that David was going to respond to, as was all of Israel. And they looked to other nations, the Ammonites that is, to hire mercenaries from, including the powerful kings of Syria, from whom they hired a total of 33,000 men for the sum of a half million pounds of silver. Now the Ammonites set themselves in battle array in front of the gate of the city, and the Syrian mercenaries were in the open field so they could trap the advancing Israelite army and fight them in two or from two directions. Now therefore, Joab has a counter strategy where he puts his best men against the numerous Syrians and his brother Abishai and the rest of the troops, he assigns the task of attacking the gate of the city of the Ammonites. Now, Joab then says to his brother, whoever's having the hardest time, the other will come and help him. He then tells his brother and the troops in verse 12 to be of good courage. Now, this was a constant reminder throughout Israel's history. We know of it in Joshua 1, 8 and 9. Joshua, when he succeeded, Moses was told to be strong and of good courage. The Lord will strengthen his heart. Deuteronomy 31, 6 through 8. Moses says to the people, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear or be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. That's some pretty familiar sounding language there. The Lord will be with us. He will not leave us nor forsake us. That's where you say, Amen. Now, the primary meaning of the word courage is to seize upon, but it also means to bind to or cleave to. And we could see that Joab clearly understood this as he binds himself and his brother and the fighting men of Israel to the people, the cities, and the God of Israel. Now, Joab says, says to Abishai, the Syrians are too strong for me, you come help me. If the Ammonites are too strong for you, I'll come help you. Notice that he didn't say, if either one of us are losing, let's run. He said, let's help each other, let's win the day for the Lord's glory. Now, verse 12 is where we derive our next truth from uh, and incorporate our word or a word from our first point uh, this evening. 
And again, we hear a lot about being intentional today. That's one of the favorite buzzwords. You hear it a lot for those who give what's called a TED Talk. And it's just a buzzword from our day that is extremely popular. But what we need to remember about all these exhortations to be intentional is this. And that is God blesses our efforts, not our intentions. God blesses our efforts, not our intentions. Now, when you bind yourself to the power of God, taking on the enemy is going to be one of the results. Because one thing will lead to another. Now, there is a difference in believing God can do something and believing He will do something. Now, believing He can do something is wonderful. It's certainly biblical. But that's just the one thing that should lead to the action as God directs, as we see here with Joab. In Psalm 31.3, David reminds us of the Lord, that you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Is, is the Lord still in the leading us business? Is he still ordering our steps? And he does so for his name's sake. And this is what was on Joab's heart. That for the Lord's name's sake, they would have courage and be strong. And this burden or intention translated into action. Now, let's add this little caveat here. In Ecclesiastes 3.17, Solomon said, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every purpose and for every work. Now, there are different seasons in life. Amen? There are different things we go through. And I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us in our times of waiting, because He does when He has ordained them. I'm not saying He doesn't bless us when we're having spiritual, physical, or emotional difficulties and we need His touch in our lives. But what I am saying is this. When He leads us to do something, the blessings aren't experienced by intending to do it. They're experiencing by actually doing it. In other words, we don't stay busy just to be busy with some kind of flurry of spiritual unguided activity. We take the mindset of David when he had faced Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, 26 to 28, David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? What was David's concern? Glory for himself? No, that Israel was being reproached, the people of God. And then he says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Again, who's his concern? Himself? No, the living God. And the people answered him in this manner. So it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said to his older brother, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Well, there was a cause in 1 Samuel 17. There is a cause in 2 Samuel as well. And the armies of the enemies of God had arrayed themselves for battle against the people of God. And it was a time for courage. It was a time for strength. Even as David bound himself to the Lord when he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, we've mentioned intentions twice, so it might be good to remember what the word actually means. It means determining mentally some action or result. That's the actual definition according to Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. 
determining mentally some action or result. Now, even the definition implies that things aren't going to happen through good intentions. It's acting upon those intentions that gets results and for us spiritually allows us to experience the blessings of God. Joab says, Abishai, here's the plan. Let's split up. If either one gets into trouble, let the other come and help him. Let's do this for the sake of God's people. Let's do this for the sake of God's cities. And let's ask the Lord's blessings on our efforts. So let's see what the Lord did through their intentions and the actions associated with them. Let's keep reading from 13 and include 11 verse 1. Pick it up in verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadizer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river when they came to Helam. And Shobach, the commander of Hadadizer's army, went before them. When it was told to David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were the servants of Hadadizer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained where? At Jerusalem. Now, when Joab and Abishai acted in defense of the cities and people of God, the Syrians fled before Joab and the Ammonites fled from Abishai. Now, after that, Joab returns to Jerusalem and verse 11 gives us some insight as to why he did not, uh, or verse 1 of chapter 11 gives us uh, potentially some insight into why he didn't pursue the fleeing forces as was the custom in battle during that time and under David's reign. Well, it seems as though winter was approaching and it was not the time of year when kings went out to battle. Now, some commentators believe that chapter 11, verse 1 actually tells us what went on between verses 14 and 15. Other commentators see chapter 11, verse 1 as a separate incident when Joab uh, leaves and he returns. Uh, well, that actually would mean Joab's return to Jerusalem doesn't have an explanation or a meaning, but some see it as a completely separate battle when David sent him out to capture the capital city of the Ammonites. Now, some again would argue there's a gap of time between verses 14 and 15, which would then explain Joab's return to Jerusalem. And when spring rolled around, the humiliating defeat of the Syrians became widely known, and Hadadizer gathered the Syrian forces who lived on the other side of the Euphrates, and Shobach, Hadadizer's field general, led the charge against Israel. Now, if that were true, if that particular interpretation were true, 
that would mean that David is simply a representative of the forces of Israel, his name being employed in verses 17 and 18, much like we would say Washington did that, or Washington did that when it's actually representative of the United States or our military. Now, whichever interpretation is true, the Syrians are soundly defeated, as verse 18 records, and there is some debate as to the numbers, because First Chronicles uh, has a record of the same event in chapter 19, but there's one variation there in First Chronicles 19, 18, where we're told there that the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed, our text says 700, First Chronicles 19, 18 says 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrian and killed Shopak, the commander of the army. Now, based on the massive number of forces assembled by Hadadi's heir, it seems like the 7,000 number fits uh, and is more compatible to the scene than 700 with the death of some 40,000 horsemen. It's probable that a copyist, remember early copies of the manuscripts were uh, transmitted by hand. They would write uh, each particular letter. Uh, some say that each page of the scripture had a numeric value that would be put on the bottom of the page to ensure that the translation or, not, or the transmission rather was accurate. But there were still copyist errors where some would drop a number off or leave an apostrophe off or a breath mark or something along those lines. Now, I wanted to include verse 1 of chapter 11 because it seems that the decision to stay home was likely based on what we read in verse 19. Now, remember, back in 2 Samuel 7, 1, we're told it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. David went on to say, here I am living in this beautifully paneled cedar home and the Ark of the Covenant is housed behind a curtain in a uh, tent made of ram skins dyed red. And he saw that to be uh, unjust and he wanted to do something about it and build the Lord's house. But he's sitting in his panel cedar home having rest from his enemies all around. Now, David, having spent years on the run from Saul, having been a man of war his whole life, having just defeated a massive Syrian army and the co-regents of Hadadizer had made peace with him, even though uh, the king had not, they became his servants. So staying home while Joab went to capture the capital of the city of the Ammonites probably sounded pretty good, and this is possibly what happened. Now we're told in 2 Samuel 12, 26 to 31, that Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon, took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. That's pretty significant respect for the king there. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. And he also brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickwork. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting. 
Between 11-1, when David stayed behind, when all the kings go out to war, and 12-26, where we're told about Joab sending for David, lest he take the city, the capital city, the royal city of the Ammonites, and get credit for the victory, and people celebrate him instead of the king. Between 11-1 and 12-26, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He is complicit in the murder of her husband Uriah. They have a child. The child dies. He has another son. He's named Solomon. And this tells us that David wasn't where he should have been for likely as much as two years. And as we follow that digression, we see that one thing leads to another. So here's our final takeaway. Here's what we can note from the inactions of David. Listen, spiritual inactivity is the devil's opportunity. Spiritual inactivity is the devil's opportunity. Now, we may not be kings like David with a national responsibility to defend the cities and the people of our land, but we can be prayerless like David was and not be where we should be, doing what we should do in and for God's kingdom. Now, how many have ever had a sermon that you heard years ago and some part of it just sticks in your mind uh, forever. I heard a sermon by a man. Who knows who E.V. Hill is? Anybody know who E.V. Hill is? Man, that guy could preach. I had the privilege of uh, being in one of his services in uh, South Central Los Angeles. Do you think I stood out? Yeah, I did. And E.V. Hill noticed right away. And we were in his service at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. And uh, it was myself and my wife and two other couples. And um, E.V. Hill says from the pulpit, I see we have some visitors. He noticed us for some reason. I don't know why he noticed us. But uh, he said, stand up and introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from. And a couple of people stood up. And the last guy that stood up, he was actually our worship leader at the time. He introduced himself. And he says, we're here with our pastor. And Evie Hill's antenna went right up. He said, pastor, come on up here. He calls me up to the pulpit and Hugged me so I couldn't run. And it was just a wonderful, he prayed over me. He asked me if I would help share in communion and pray for the cup. And it was just an amazing uh, experience. But man, what a preacher. I'll never forget, he had a sermon in which he addressed what he called the sin of Job. I thought, the sin of Job? What are you talking about? God bragged on him. How in the world could you come up with a sermon based on the sin of Job. Well, he pulled it out of Job sixteen twelve, and he said, this was the sin of Job. And it was simply, I was at ease. This was Job's testimony. And he said, and I don't know that his sermon was necessarily in the context of what Job was saying, but I sure liked it. Well, what he was saying is that God's people are never supposed to be just taking it easy. We're not supposed to be just at ease. We're supposed to be Engaged. We're supposed to be engaging the adversary. Are you still here tonight? We're not supposed to be at ease. We're going to be at ease forever, someday. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. And Proverbs 19, 15 to 16 says, Laziness casts one into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. But he who keeps the commandment keeps his soul but he who is careless of his ways will die. Now, we've all heard the old adage, idle hands are the devil's tool, right? Now, it's true. Satan exploits 
are times of spiritual inactivity, whether that be prayerlessness or not doing what we're called and equipped to do. And both of these things and all the others like it are open doors for the flesh. And David wasn't where he was supposed to be. And thus he was not doing what he was supposed to do. One thing led to another. He stayed home. He looked at another man's wife. He slept with her. She reported she was pregnant. He had a plan to make it look like it was actually her husband who got her pregnant. And when that didn't work, he had him killed. The child that was born died. His kingdom was filled with trouble from that point on until the day he died. And it's been said, it takes a lifetime to build a testimony, but only a moment to ruin it. So let's not be idle, because one thing leads to another. And inactivity is the devil's opportunity. Time is short. The day is at hand. We have much to do for the name and the glory of the Lord. And therefore, we ought to be about, as Jesus was, the Father's business. As he gave us a directive to occupy until he comes. Now, I like the old saying, and it's often repeated at pastor's conferences as a word of encouragement that we might get tired in the work, but we should never be tired of the work. And therefore, we need to be serving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength up until the very hour that he comes to take us home in a moment and a twinkling of an eye. And there's a big transition that we're going to follow, and we introduced it here in chapter 11, verse 1. So after praise night in a couple of weeks, we'll pick it up in chapter 11 and see the downward spiral begin in the life of David because of one decision that led to many other consequences behind it. With that said, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word tonight. We thank you for the insights that we can glean every time we open your book. Lord, we thank you that we've read so many wonderful things of David. And Lord, we thank you that never in the verses recorded about him do we see that the the blessed moniker that you assigned to him of being the man after your own heart, it was never repealed. It was never removed from him, even in the midst of his failures, even during his great victories and all the other things we see with the roller coaster ride that we call his life. Lord, you remained with your hand upon him. You blessed him. You strengthened him. And Lord, you did so for your namesake and glory. We pray you do that in our lives as well. And we ask your blessings on us now as we go. We do pray for, Lord, this uh, concern through this virus that is spreading around the world. Lord, we do pray for those infected. We ask that they would recover. And Lord, we we thank you that you are the great physician. So we lift up those uh, around the world who are battling, Lord, this uh, COVID-19 or coronavirus. And we just pray, God, that you would touch and heal and receive glory for it. So we thank you for our time together tonight. We pray you bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen.